Coming up, there are questions abound surrounding the Brooklyn Nets. Will Kyrie Irving miss the rest of the series? Is there a James Harden sighting forthcoming? Can Kevin Durant will the Nets to the conference finals? An interesting development is taking place in the Eastern Conference semis. The Islanders draw first blood in the Cup semifinals. Can they upset the defending champs? Will the Canadiens continue to roll as the hottest team in the Stanley Cup playoffs? Can the momentum of the PGA push Phil Mickelson to his first U.S. Open victory? I'll preview golf's third major of the year. Novak Djokovic is one Grand Slam from tying both of his contemporaries in Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, but is he already the greatest men's player ever? The latest and greatest in Major League Baseball? All of that and then some. So gear up for another fun-filled, action-packed, fast-paced sports talk podcast party. But first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the Jay Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in great spirits as always with summer. Now, less than a week away. That's right. We could count them pretty much on one, eh, a couple of hands, but about six fingers to go before the summer solstice. But with the sports world firing on all cylinders, you've come to the right place for in-depth analysis and opinions from top to bottom. As this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 198 episodes, just a two point conversion, a safety, 
a layup, a slam dunk, either one of those two, or even a two-run jack away from 200 episodes, I welcome you back. It is a Monday, June the 14th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J-Wheels What's the Deal segment, what to expect here on this podcast, is as follows. The Brooklyn Nets, as we already know, have lost James Harden just 47 seconds into their second-round matchup with the Bucks. No problem. But now they lose Kyrie Irving and their grip of the 2-0 series lead that they once had, now heading into a pivotal Game 5 in Brooklyn tomorrow. Can Kevin Durant save the day? Is there a James Harden sighting on the horizon? Lots of interesting subplots as they face their first crisis of the postseason, and the MVP of the league flames out as they get swept into the summer. I'll have the entire NBA playoff landscape later on. Both Garrett Cole and Pete Alonzo make headlines for different reasons this week in light of pitchers doctoring baseballs. I'll get into everything that's happening in Major League Baseball and go through the lay of the land on the American League and National League circuit. Is Novak Djokovic the greatest men's tennis player ever? He is also halfway to a Grand Slam in a calendar year, which hasn't been done in almost 60 years. So I'll be sure to take a deep dive into that. The U.S. Open kicks off on Thursday at Torrey Pines outside of San Diego as the third leg of golf's four majors will usher in. Can Phil Mickelson ride the wave of this PGA win that he secured last month in Kiowa Island to finally get that elusive U.S. Open that he's been a bridesmaid several times in his career? In the NFL, a former Super Bowl coach passes away. The Sean Watson news, Aaron Rodgers, do I really have to get into that? Everything that you can shake a stick at here in the sports world, including my hero and zero of the week. As we get deeper into the postseasons for both the NBA and NHL, where on the hardwood, we have a situation where one series is already done with Denver and Phoenix. We have another where the Sixers have righted the ship and have a 2-1 series lead where game four tonight in Atlanta, where they could put a stranglehold onto that series, as well as Utah and the Clippers where the Clippers were able to save some face and win a game three, but now they have to go ahead and even the series where the only other series in the NBA playoffs, the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks are deadlocked at two apiece. Not a lot of intrigue on a whole unless you zero in on the Nets and Bucks, which I'll do later on. But as I drop the puck to start off the podcast, the NHL right now is into the Cup semifinals, it's not a conference final this year as we know, considering the divisions have been broken down to Central, East, North, and West. We don't have a scenario where it's just the Eastern and Western Conference. And yesterday kicked off the semifinal where the New York Islanders, who have had this run, can't say it's come out of nowhere because when you look at what they've done here over the past two years, they're pretty much in the same spot they were nine months ago against the same team for a chance to go play for a Stanley Cup. And before we get to yesterday's game, which was a thriller at the end, the Islanders showing what they're all about in that Barry Trot system, defense first, if you want to say, or even dare I say, a neutral zone trap for the 2020s, where the Islanders now have a one-zip lead over the defending champs in the Tampa Bay Lightning. But I want to talk about their journey to getting here because last Monday we looked at a series that was even at two apiece they were going back to Boston to play a game five last Monday night and all they've done ever since has pretty much played in front they got off to a big lead there last Monday they held on for a 5-4 victory coming home to the barn where 
it was pretty much a coronation from the start where the Islanders were able to jump on the Bruins early. Yes, the Bruins were able to get another goal to make it even. And then the second period is what turned it around where Tuka Rask, who was supposedly going to be out of Game 5 due to a lower body injury, did play in that game. He was pulled for Jeremy Swayman in the third period of Game 5, but certainly was not the same player that we saw early on in the series. And then the Islanders took it to him there in that Game 6 to clinch the series. They end up winning 6-2 to two with two empty netters on the back end. And if you're an Islander fan right now, there's still a lot of hockey to be played. You can't get super giddy because this Tampa Bay Lightning team has a lot of firepower as we know and as we've seen so far in this postseason. But boy, if they continue to play the way they have pretty much since the beginning of Game 5, but even more so, when I think of the Bruins getting that power play goal early in the third period by Brad Marchand, who had a phenomenal series, and Barry Trotz rallied the troops, He did not like what he saw in the first five minutes of that third period. And pretty much from that point on, through the first game of the Cup semifinals, the Islanders right now are firing on all cylinders. They're a team that needs to play within that system in order for them to get where they want to go. We know that they have some key guys on their team that can score goals, whether your name is Brock Nelson, whether your name is Matthew Barzal, who finally woke up. Remember, in the Penguin series, he did nothing. And in the first three games in the Bruins series, he did nothing. And since then, he has been the Islanders' best player. I understand you could argue that their goalie, Semyon Varlamov, has been the guy who has been steady, not only between the pipes, but has been that calm for this Islander storm that has just pretty much blitzed through these series. When you look at the Penguin series being down 2-1 and sweeping through the rest to get to the next round against the Bruins, where they were down 2-1 there and sweeping the final three games to get to where they are right now. But the Islanders yesterday, as we fast forward, when you see what they did against the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I understand that the coach, John Cooper, in the post game came out and said that the team wasn't mentally there, that their minds were elsewhere for whatever the reason. And why would you think that from a team that is pretty much steamrolled through these first two rounds against the Florida Panthers and the Carolina Hurricanes, that for them to just kind of take this game off, so to speak, mentioning that there were a lot of mental errors, some unforced errors that were unlike lightning hockey here in the first two rounds of the postseason, and chalk it up to whatever, whether it was an off day or an off afternoon for the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Islanders were just on point and razor sharp for them to come out with a 2-1 victory. And it was interesting because at the very end of this game, I found it fascinating from Cooper where after they get the power play goal by Braden Point, and he's one of the guys that the Islanders have to focus on. He killed them last year in the semifinals up in the bubble in Edmonton, and he did get that power play goal in close, point blank, and even with 53 seconds left, and that was due to not only a power play, which as we all know, the Islanders, their penalty killing is going to have to be at its utmost. It's going to have to be playing at peak performance because we know how lethal the lightning power play is, as well as their offense and their lines, defensemen, etc. We know that they're a very deep team. But when we see how those final 53 seconds played out where John Cooper, for whatever the reason, was able to get a pseudo timeout in, a break to where the 
Islanders had to regroup there a little bit, but the Lightning were able to put on a last-minute flurry, able to get a couple of shots on net. One sailed over the net and pretty much out to center ice, which iced the game for the Islanders. And for the Islanders to get that victory was huge because now they're playing with house money going into tomorrow night's game two. Now, as we've seen in the past, they did win a game one in Pittsburgh in overtime and then lost the game two. And then they lost game one decisively to the Bruins before winning in overtime in that game two with Casey Zizekas. So now that they drew first blood here, you kind of wonder what are we going to expect from an Islander team moving forward? Well, I could tell you this, based on the comments by the Tampa Bay Lightning coach, I could see them coming out full bore to where they dominate from start to finish. Now, it's not to say the Islanders are just going to give up or they're going to roll over or they're not going to play well, but you do have to wonder, this Lightning team, which has, if you were to draft both rosters and take a look as to which players you would take before you would take an Islander player, arguably you could probably take four players before you pick one Islander. When you look at their defenseman and Victor Hedman, when you look at Nikita Kucherov, when you look at even Braden Point for that matter, and that's not even including the goalie in a one, Andre Vasilevsky. And Vasilevsky did not have a good game yesterday. Granted, he gave up two goals, but the Barzal goal on the breakaway somehow got through. Eh, you could kind of wonder, maybe the pressure, Barzal coming in with the defense. Maybe I could give you that. But on the Ryan Pulak goal, there was no excuse. I don't know what he saw there. The puck just squeezed through. And the next thing you know, the Islanders had a 2-0 lead and was pretty much right in their wheelhouse because they know that, yes, can they put some pressure on the Lightning offensive zone from time to time throughout the game? And they did have some good chances, but you knew that they were going to fall back and try to sit on that lead with about 15 minutes to go. But as we all know, that's the last thing you want to do against a Lightning team because you want to play to win and play not to lose. But the Islanders were able to hang on there, and I could see the Lightning coming out fast and furious here in a game two, and win decisively. I could see a 6-1, 6-2, 5-2 type game. But here's the question if you're an Islander fan or if you're rooting against the Lightning as to what to see throughout. The Islanders are going to have to win another game in Tampa. Now, do we know, is it going to be tomorrow night? Will it be in game five, which the Islanders have done very well in game fives on the road so far in this postseason? Or dare I even say in a game seven, for a winner-takes-all to go to the Stanley Cup. Because as we've seen Tampa throughout this postseason, they have been dominant on the road. They won the two games in Florida to start off the postseason. They won all three road games in Carolina, as we saw. So Tampa's not going to be afraid to play on the road, even in a hostile environment as the Nassau Coliseum can be, even in that old barn, even with those fans. And... We get it's going to be a different beast than what we saw last year in a bubble where there were literally probably five people in the stands. And what I mean by that is probably NHL personnel that may have been in the press box somewhere. So game three, no matter what happens tomorrow night in Tampa, is going to be a hornet's nest for the Lightning. But they're defending Stanley Cup champions for a reason. I said that the Lightning were going to win this series in six. I mentioned that yesterday. I just thought they had too much firepower for the Islanders. I get it if the Islanders play their game. 
and also at the same time play physical. As we saw right off the bat there, eight seconds in with Matt Martin and Barclay Goodrow with the unsportsmanlike conducts. Islanders definitely have toughness. Islanders definitely are going to try to play their game as best as they possibly can. But we know that Tampa is all about finesse. Tampa also has power too. Not from the power that we like to see in a postseason where it's going to be physical, it's going to be rough, tough, tumble. Uh Uh-uh. Nothing like that. But they're going to try to skate circles around that Islander defensive system. And if they get an inch, you know they're going to take it. And that's what I fear tomorrow night and pretty much for the whole series. Can the Islanders win this series? Absolutely. They won a game in Tampa, as we saw yesterday. I think they have another one in them. It just depends on which game that's going to be. I could see that more game five than I could see it tomorrow night or even in a game seven because if you're an Islander fan, you do not want to go to Tampa for game seven. You just don't. Win this at six. Win it on your home ice. Hopefully give the fans in that final year, in that building, something to cheer about. And they've given them a lot to cheer about so far here in this postseason. And I think the Islanders definitely have a good shot to win. But we're going to have to wait and see, especially the games in Long Island, how they unfold. Because Tampa, they're going to be a tough out. So I'm going to be fascinated to see how tomorrow night plays, as well as the two games out in the island, the crowd, the atmosphere, etc., so, fasten your seatbelt on the fans because we're just getting started and we'll certainly keep an eye on it as we move along here in this postseason. As far as the other series where we'll have Montreal go up against the Vegas Golden Knights and to give you a quick synopsis of how both of these teams got here, the Canadians, oh, what could you say? Losers of five straight to end the regular season, down three games to one to the Toronto Maple Leafs to storm back to not only win that series, but to sweep the Winnipeg Jets out of the postseason. 59 points in the regular season, just three points more than what the amount of games that they played throughout the course of this aborted season. And for the Canadians to ride this magic carpet ride, to have all the old ghosts, which I'm sure they're somewhere floating around, whether it's in... Montreal or some of the other cities that they played in, whether it be, of course, Winnipeg or even in Toronto, whether it's Guy Lafleur, whether it's Yvonne Cornier, whether it's Maurice Rocket Richard, Bob Gainey, just go on down the list. And the Canadians are here to go up against a Vegas Golden Knight team where give them all the credit in the world. When you're down 0-2 in a series where you're going back home, understandably so, but dominated in those first two games. Granted, game two was won in overtime by Colorado. But for the Golden Knights to come back the way they did, impressive where you have the likes of Jonathan Marshall in those middle games of three and four, putting the team on his back to get them even. And then now to get to the game five, which if you're an Avalanche fan, and in particular... Number one overall pick from a few years back and one Nathan McKinnon. This is one that's going to stick to your craw for the whole summer. He's probably still tossing and turning as I speak because when you have a 2-0 lead heading into the third period in a pivotal game five and then to give up not only two goals early on in the third period but then Mark Stone who had dominated and pretty much had locked you down other than game six with two assists and then the game one where he had the explosion with he and Gabriel Landeskog. 
But for the Golden Knights to come out of that game victorious, and mind you, in that game, you had a gift goal at the end of the first period where Brandon Saad took a shot with literally seconds left and it handcuffed the goalie and Marc-Andre Fleury. He must have misread it because he brought his glove hand across his body to try to snatch the puck out of the air and it went underneath the crossbar to where you figured that was going to be the catalyst to propel the avalanche onto a game six where they could wrap it up and move on to the cup semifinal. But here it was, as I mentioned, 2 nothing lead in your building. And to have that slip through your hands, to have to go to Vegas to play a game six where you know that building was going to be rocking. And sure enough, when you had the late goal there by Alex Petrangelo in the second period with the game tied at three apiece, and for him to get that goal with about, what, 40... I believe it was about 18 seconds to go in that period. And then it was just a matter of time before the Golden Knights took off. And sure enough, they had to get the goal that separated and give a little breathing room about 11 minutes into the third period where William Carrier scored that goal and then later on to attack on the sixth goal and the Avalanche go off into the summer with a ton of question marks, a team that was the President Trophy winner, throughout the regular season, would have been the top seed in the postseason if they were to move on. And all they're going to have is a bunch of questions that need to be answered as to why they weren't able to seal the deal, not only with them being up 2-0, but that Game 5 is going to haunt them all summer long. And you have to give the Golden Knights a ton of credit. To be down 0-2, we understand that teams have come back from that deficit, especially when you're going home. But to see the way that Game 5 unfolded, and how they were able to steal that game, as well as clinching it in their building there for Game 6. And we understand that Nathan McKinnon is not a generational player when you look at number 1 overalls over the last few years, whether your name is Connor McDavid, or even a guy like Sidney Crosby, and if you want to go way back, Mario Lemieux. But those are guys that, of course, they're not going to win each and every year, but they certainly found their way and were able to seal the deal to either propel them to move on to the next series, or even win a Stanley Cup. And although McKinnon still has his future ahead of him, he still has a lot of hockey to be played, but this one's going to stick to the back of his playoff resume or his hockey card because there is no way that you could dismiss, despite Vegas playing well and coming back and winning the series and give him all the credit, but for McKinnon and company to just implode here the way they did is inexcusable. And if you're an Avs fan, I don't want to hear, oh, it was a great year. Oh, it's just another step. Uh-uh. All that goes out the window because you were not thinking that going into the third period in a game five, that if you happen to lose that game or weren't going to come out of the series victorious at that time, that, oh, this would have been a great season. Nevertheless, not the case. This is one that's going to stick in your craw until you're able to get past the second round, into a third round, and even more so to exercise that demon when you win a Stanley Cup. And granted, he has plenty of time, his career's just getting started, but that certainly was not a good way to go out if you're a former number one overall pick and a one Nathan McKinnon. Now, as far as the series between Montreal and Vegas, I wonder if the layoff's going to hurt them a little bit. They've had a full week off. Montreal now is coming into the States for the very first time. I'm sure they probably stuck to their own protocols as if they were in Canada. 
everything is going to be run like a tight ship, you would think. And I'm not going to go as far as Vegas with all the momentum now with beating Colorado that they're going to right away just dispose of the Canadians in quick fashion. But the one thing that I would wonder, because of the layoff, and not only that, with Vegas picking up some steam here, will it take some time for Montreal to get back on the beam? And you would think you're playing in a cup semifinal. If this isn't going to be motivation enough, then you should be doing something else. Understood. But at the same time, you do have to wonder whether or not the glass slipper or the clock is going to strike 12 on this Canadian team. And we understand the ghosts and all the former Canadian greats that I mentioned in the past, but Vegas is playing with a lot of gas in their tank. They just came off of a very exciting, even emotional, and maybe even exhausting to a certain extent, because when you're down 0-2, obviously the chips are against you. And for them to sweep the avalanche the way they did and to dispose of them, you have to wonder whether or not the Canadians are going to be up for that task, knowing that Vegas was able to get over that mountain And I don't think they're going to look at the Canadians and play down to them as an opponent. But with the first two games in Vegas, them having home ice, and them pretty much have a clear path to a Stanley Cup, I could see them winning the series. I'm going to say in five games. I think the clock's going to strike 12 on this Canadian team. Ghosts and all. So we'll have to keep our eyes out on that. And it's funny because I know last week I had mentioned how Tampa and Colorado were the two best teams in the sport. And there's still a long way to go in the Tampa Islander series, of course. But with the way they performed Colorado, obviously I was wrong. And it's easy to look at two home victories and to kind of break out the pom-poms for the Avalanche. But man, that was just a terrible job by them in how they folded like a cheap suit here. And start off their summer vacation a lot earlier than expected. So I figured I'd start off with the hockey. And with the cup semifinals underway. I wanted to kind of get that off on its tracks. And now turn my attention to the hardwood in the NBA. And pretty much what you have here in the second round. The only drama is what's happening in Brooklyn at the moment. Let's talk about Denver and Phoenix real quick. That was just complete domination from start to finish. What could you say about the Suns? They have proven me wrong time after time after time. I said this, if you've listened to the podcast going back to the start of the beginning of the regular season, the Suns were a trendy pick in the West. The Suns were going to be a team with Chris Paul, obviously Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, their cast of characters, that they were going to do some things. We know that they were a two seed. They had to go up against the big, bad, mighty Lakers, and we saw them fall apart as far as their health goes. So they were able to win in six, being down 2-1. And now here they are with the MVP of the league and a one, Nikola Jokic, of the Denver Nuggets. Their first two games in Phoenix, blowouts, non-competitive to say the least, to where the coach, Mike Malone, who in the first round said the same thing where his team played soft against Portland. He did the same thing. I don't know if that was a tactic to try to psych up his team. It may have worked in the first round. It certainly didn't work here. And you got to wonder whether or not that fell on deaf ears or that became tired because when you look at how they performed there in the game three, obviously not the way you expected. A team at home in their building to perform the way they did was inexcusable. And then last night the game was closer, but was there ever a doubt that Phoenix was going to lose that game? And even with the MVP and Jokic getting thrown out of the game 
midway through the third period where you could tell the frustration was just mounting, where he took a swipe at Cameron Payne, which he was trying to knock the ball out of his hands, but let's face it, he came from pretty much the rafters of the ball arena and just swooped down on Payne where it looked worse in normal speed and in slow motion he did catch Payne in the face and obviously in the shoulder but with the tempers flaring and the frustration mounting and Jokic and he deserved to get tossed it was pretty much the intent of the swipe as opposed to the actual impact that it took or that it came upon Cameron Payne, but it's all about how the Suns have played here, and they've been the story not only just in the West, but in the postseason, because as I said before, and I'll say again, I did not have a clue that they were this good, or at least championship good, and we have seen that here now over the past 10 days or almost two weeks now. So from the Suns' perspective, give it up for Chris Paul, what a performance there, especially in the closeout game yesterday. 14 for 19 from the field, 37 points. Follow that up by Devin Booker's 34 and 11, 11 rebounds that is. And with all of their players, whether your name is Mikael Bridges, Jay Crowder, they have exceeded more than what anybody could ever expect, even as a two seed. And I got to give it up. They have been phenomenal here throughout the stretch. And Chris Paul with his shoulder, we understand this is a guy that's going to the Hall of Fame. I have gotten on him over the years for a lot of terrible performances, especially in the postseason, but this is his shining moment right now. Forget about what happened a few years ago with Houston where he did get injured in that series against the Golden State Warriors. I believe that was in 2018, and that was his first time in the conference final, and unfortunately for him and the Rockets at that time, they weren't able to get that final game being up three games to two in order for them to get to an NBA final, but this one has to be a lot sweeter because of the team that he's playing for, as well as the coach and Monty Williams, whereas they embrace there at the end of that game, which you know it's been a long road for both of those guys, even when you look at Monty Williams and what he's had to endure as far as tragedy in his family. But it only gets them to the Western Conference Finals. Now let's see what happens, whether it's going to be Utah or the Los Angeles Clippers, and I'll get to that in a second. But the Suns get a ton of credit in my book, and I was completely wrong in choosing them throughout the course of the year as being a team that I have to see it to believe it. Well, now I'm a believer. And as far as the Nuggets, this is just a collapse of, I'm not going to say epic proportions, but considering they had a hard-fought series against the Trailblazers to where they came out of it victorious in six games, and for them to not even show up in the series is just an abomination. And I get that Nikola Jokic had some moments here in the series, especially in the game three where he had 32-20 and I believe 12. But give it up DeAndre Ayton where I said that could have been a little bit of a mismatch and it was going to be a matchup that you would focus on a little bit. But Jokic came up small here. His team did not do anything and it wasn't all on him because his supporting cast wasn't great. And it's easy to say now that without Jamal Murray to have that second banana, that this team wasn't going to go anywhere or go far, even though against the Blazers, they played very well. But when your supporting cast is an inconsistent and erratic Michael Porter Jr. and in and out Austin Rivers, who will give you those flashes, but at the same time could be invisible. And Aaron Gordon, which did not fit even after the trade deadline, a guy that a lot of people thought could be not necessarily a missing piece. I'm not going to go as far as saying that, but certainly 
a reinforcement for a team that had enough players on offense to maybe give them another boost, another lane player, and he was nowhere to be found. And if you're Mike Malone, I know you're searching for all kinds of answers because to put your team to the test to the point where you have to call them soft, and let's face it, when you're calling your players or when you're calling your play soft, in essence, you're calling your players soft. He deserves to come back next year. I know that was a tough way to go out, but you have to wonder whether or not is this going to wear thin on these players come training camp in September and October and into another long NBA season next year is something to keep in mind. I understand that for right now, and especially when you get to the start of next season, but that's still a long way off. But this is something that you're going to have to keep planning in the back of your mind here because if this Nugget team gets off to a slow start and you don't think they're going to have Murray back at the start of the year, Remember, he suffered this ACL injury in April, and if the season's going to start in mid-October, the ACL injury is a six- to nine-month injury. So you may not have him for the start of the season. Who knows what their roster's going to look like, how many moves they're going to make. Also, Will Barton is a guy who played pretty well in the game four, but came back injured and wasn't really 100%. So, Nugget fans, I know for the five of you out there, I know it was tough sledding. I know this was a... Tough pill to swallow, but you do have to wonder if the coach-player dynamic and relationship is going to be longing for a long-distance relationship considering what happened here in these two rounds of the postseason. So we'll keep our eyes on that down the road. And to stay out west with the Clippers in Utah, Donovan Mitchell, who is becoming a star right in front of our eyes and the way he's performed with the 45 points in Game 1 as the Jazz came back on the Clippers, and you had no Mike Conley in Games 1 and 2, as he had the mild strain of the right hamstring. And for Stephen A. to come out and say that Donovan Mitchell is the best player in the franchise's history. Now, we understand they never won a title in a one Carl Malone and John Stockton, but Carl Malone is the fourth all-time leading scorer in the history of the league. And as a member of the Utah Jazz, he scored over 30,000 points. And last I checked, John Stockton is the all-time assist leader in NBA history. Now, can we have Donovan Mitchell play at least another five, seven years in that uniform before we could even think that Donovan Mitchell is the greatest player in the franchise's history? And I understand Stephen A's doing that to get the headlines, and he's doing that to get some pushback, and I understand it's entertainment. But there has to be some credibility to that. And this isn't a knock Donovan Mitchell by any stretch, but he's been in the league, what, three, four years tops off the top of my head? Maybe four years? And he had that great first round in the bubble against Denver last year, but again, it was a first round. Nobody remembers that. And here he is doing what a star player on a top-seeded team out west is doing, performing at a high level, at an MVP-type level, and for... Stephen A, to make that declaration right now, he's off his rocker. I don't care how long he's been watching the NBA. I don't care how long he's been following the sport. And we know Stephen A, his credibility in the league is by far one of the best. But you can't make a statement like that. I am sorry. Can we see a few more years and some consistency out of this guy before we anoint him as being on Mount Rushmore and number one in jazz history? So let me just put that out there. 
But for the Jazz then on Friday night, or excuse me, Saturday night to have the Clippers come back where Kawhi had 34 and Paul George had 31. And even though Mitchell had a very good game, but he felt it was wise to not be a part of that blowout and even said in the post game that he was pretty much preserving himself for game four, which will be tonight. And let's see what the Clippers have because as we've seen so far in this postseason, they've come back from 2-0 series holes. They've been able to win a series as we saw last against the Dallas Mavericks. But with the Jazz, you would think they're going to take care of business tonight and then maybe win five games, which will be anticlimactic because that's pretty much how the whole NBA postseason has been. I think that the Clippers will win a game tonight, but I think they're going to end up losing in six. And then you'll have a Utah-Phoenix matchup that when we get to it, we'll certainly dissect and break down. But I do not trust the Clippers... They had it in them to come back and win the other night. Let's see them do that again tonight and make it a series. And even then, let's see if they can go on the road to win a game five because they're going to have to win a game in, on the road at some point. And as we've seen so far in the postseason, granted that the Dallas Mavericks aren't world beaters, but we have seen them win on the road. And let's see if the Clippers will continue that trend after a game four tonight. And then when we look in the East, the story... And I probably should have started with this because now as the Brooklyn Nets who are on the express track to the NBA Finals, it has been derailed. It's not completely off the tracks, but they certainly have to get their car and their wheels back on the tracks because after two blowouts at home, including an almost 40-point blowout in Game 2, And then a game three, which came down to that final play. It looked like one of those old-style 90s NBA playoff games where you had the 86-83 final. But I know Twitter was abuzz with the final seconds of that game where Bruce Brown is taking the big shot. And when you watch how that play unfolded, you can't kill Brown. Here was a guy that was trying to get the inbounds pass, and it looked like it was going to him. But for whatever the reason, it was fumbled right out of the gate. Kyrie tried to come in to save the day. But when Brown got the ball and he took it left, he had Blake Griffin to his left, where you know you're not going to pass it to him for a three. And then Kevin Durant, where you couldn't throw in his direction because he was guarded pretty closely. Brown's only shot was to get to the basket. Joe Harris was open, but he was in the far corner where he's not going to make that cross-court pass into the corner for Harris to be freed up for a three. So he tried to lay up there, obviously unsuccessful. I know Blake Griffin's at the top with his hands up in the air, and a lot of questions were to be asked as to why Bruce Brown was taking that final shot. All right, maybe it was a little ambitious for him to try to do so, but when you watch that replay, there was really no other other place to go with the ball than to try to either draw a foul or attack the basket, so I thought it was smart on his part. I may be in the minority when it comes to that, because, right, I don't want Bruce Brown taking that shot, but where else is he going to go after everything I described? Nowhere. So you have a scenario where it's 2-1, and then yesterday, where the Nets got off to the big lead, Milwaukee starts chipping away, and then midway through the second quarter, where Kyrie's going up for a putback bunny, and he lands on the ankle of Giannis Antetokounmpo, turns his ankle, X-rays are negative, which is a good thing, but when you see how the ankle turned, and we all know 
that ankle sprains, especially high ankle sprains, all you have to do is ask his former teammate and a one LeBron James, those suckers never heal. And you know when they heal? When you're home for the holidays. And the Nets could be facing that dilemma because we won't know the status of Kyrie probably until game time, and you would think he's not going to play. Will James Harden resurface here as the last time we saw him, 47 seconds into the series, he was walking into the locker room, and we haven't seen him in a uniform since. Now, who knows if he's going to be able to go at what? 50%, 60%? You would think that he'd have to be at least somewhere in the 75 to 80% vicinity in order for him to play. Because if he's anything less than that, chances are he's going to re-injure it, and you're probably not going to see him for the rest of the postseason for as long as the Nets are going to be playing basketball. So this falls into the lap of a one Kevin Durant. And with a game five tomorrow in Brooklyn and Milwaukee have had stretches where they've been terrible. And Giannis, although he has put up points, but the big question is whether or not he's going to be able to carry the mail as a two-time defending MVP. Well, he's not defending anymore because Jokic, of course, is your MVP, but a former two-time back-to-back MVP. And we know Giannis, if he's in the open court, forget about it. Or if he gets anywhere near the basket, he's unstoppable. But if he's at the perimeter and away from the basket, it's a whole set of encyclopedias. Because we have not seen Giannis come through in that part of his game. Whether you put up that wall in transition or you're able to play that half-court defense where Giannis, anywhere outside of 15 feet, you're pretty much holding your breath. But they have new life. And they have been resuscitated to the point where who's going to suit up for this Brooklyn Net team come tomorrow? And your guess is as good as mine. I would think Kyrie's not going to play. I would think James Harden is not going to play. So their role players are going to have to step up here. Whether your name is Landry Shamet, whether your name is Joe Harris isn't a role player, but he's going to have to contribute in a big way offensively in order for the Nets to not only win the series, but of course win a game five. You're going to have to have guys like Bruce Brown, who played well early in the series, Mike James, Tyler Johnson. Those are the guys that are going to have to really have a collective effort to go ahead and put together not only just one win, but two wins in order for them to get themselves to the next round. So now we're going to see what Coach Steve Nash is made of here. We understand coaching a bunch of these superstars. It may seem easy. We understand egos and the like. But now he's going to have to plug in some of these players to come up in key spots in order for them to get to the next round. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. And this is pretty much the only drama that we have here in this NBA second round because between the Hawks and Sixers, even after the Game 1 victory by Atlanta, they have not been able to muster anything to slow down, let alone stop, a one Joel Embiid. And that's where I'm going to start because I have been hypercritical of this man Pretty much since I started the podcast. And for him to perform the way he has at the MVP level that he's shown throughout the whole year, putting up big numbers throughout the series, even 39 points on a losing effort in game one, but to have 40 and then 27 in a game three on Friday night to where they blew the game open in the third quarter after being up by five at the half. And also, when you talk about Teams that need to have a, not necessarily a second fiddle or a big three as we've seen now in this generation, but to have those guys that come off the bench, whether your name is Shake Milton or Furkan Korkmaz 
or even a guy like Dwight Howard. Those are the type of efforts, performances, and to chip in in order to not only just win around or win big games on the road, because a lot of these players that we've seen over the years, they could have those big game efforts in their home building. Crowd behind you, environment, being comfortable. But those road games is when you have your bench players or the fourth or fifth guy that puts in whether it's 16 points or gets those big rebounds or even a big assist there late in the game. So the Sixers right now should be clicking on all cylinders. This is a series that I think is going to be over right now. I thought they were going to win in five, but let's see what Atlanta has. Again, they've had no answer for Joel Embiid. Ben Simmons, we know about him defensively. He could be hot and cold in these games. And it's funny, I mentioned that if he has a game like he did in Game 3, where I believe it was 18-7-5, those are the type of games where the Hawks could win. But as we've seen, especially after Game 1, that hasn't been the case. So if the Hawks are planning to get back into the series, it's a must-win for them tonight before the scene shifts to Philadelphia there later in the week. And that's what you got with the NBA. It has been a postseason for both sports, NHL and NBA. I'm not going to sit here and say one to forget, but it's close. When you've had collectively two game sevens in both the first two rounds of the hockey and basketball, it certainly isn't thrilling or anything to write home about, to say the least. Now, we can only hope with the Nets and Bucks it may get pushed to a seventh game, but that's because the Nets are compromised with injuries. If the Clippers have any testicular fortitude, maybe they could win a game tonight and then try to do the same to push it to a seventh game. But other than that, you have nothing to really sink your teeth into to say that these playoffs have been scintillating by any stretch. So that's what we have there. A couple of quick notes, and one is my bad. I did not mention this last week, so raise my hand high, my error. I did not mention that Coach Mike Krzyzewski of Duke is going to retire after this upcoming 2021-22 season. He will hand over the keys to the Duke Castle to a one John Shire, a guy who he did coach back in the day, and feels that the Blue Devils will be in good hands moving forward. Obviously, it remains to be seen, but this is the perfect scenario for one John Shire, knowing that he has Coach K that's going to pretty much show him the ropes throughout the course of this season. We know this is going to be a farewell tour for Coach K, something that he doesn't really like, something that he maybe won't even at right now embrace, but you would think once he gets into the season and when he starts making those road trips through the ACC and through certain arenas against certain coaches, whether it's Jim Beheim in Syracuse or maybe even to the Garden this year if Duke is going to play St. John's, which they usually do every other year. That's when he may bask in it a little bit. But Coach K, what do I need to say about his career? He wants to go out with one more championship. Depends on what the recruiting class is. And you could also argue that now with the world that we live in, with the transfer portals and players moving about, quick, fast, in a hurry, that he's no longer wants to be a part of that type of system, considering that he's been a one-and-done type coach here, especially over the last dozen years or so. And for Coach K, 
a decorated Hall of Fame, all-time great coach. There isn't anything more I could add to that than what's on the resume. And that's not even including the Olympics and what he's done there with the USA team. But final year, I could say he's going to go off into the sunset. We'll wait until after the next college basketball season. But that was one thing that I let slip through and did not mention on the airwaves last week. So Coach K will take his final bow throughout the course of the upcoming college basketball season. And speaking of coaches, the Celtics may look to a player that they once drafted many moons ago as a candidate for their open position there. And that could be Chauncey Billups, who's getting a lot of pub throughout the league. Billups, we know his career as well. Drafted by the Celtics, bounced on a million different teams. We all know about those Piston teams there in the 2000s, being part of that championship team in 2004, then moving on to Denver, played in a zillion conference finals. And why not? If he happens to be the guy, hire him. Point guard, if the Celtics ever got a point guard, that would be a good fit for whichever that young player or even a player that, whether procured by trade or a free agent, I think would be a boon for the Celtics to bring on a guy like that. But who knows when they're going to finalize their coaching search or who the final few candidates will be, but that is one that has come through the pike, as well as Jason Kidd, but I don't think he's going to be a part of the mix, and I wouldn't trust him either, considering the one stop in Brooklyn, and then he wanted to have total control of the franchise and... After one year, he was jettisoned, and then he went to Milwaukee, and we saw what happened there with the one year with Giannis, and then now with the Lakers. But he was also connected with the Portland job, with Cherry Stotts being let go or the mutual agreement between the coach and the organization. But right now, Kidd isn't interested in the Portland job. So that's all we got there with the news and notes for the NBA. All right, now I'll turn my attention to baseball and the news of the past week involves with the situation that we touched on last week in regards to the doctored baseballs, the crackdown that may start as early as today with the umpires and Major League Baseball to check some of these pitchers or all these pitchers, whomever they feel may question or deem to have that slight advantage, whether it's using the spider tack or having whatever type of residue of rosin or anything on their uniform, belt, caps, pants, etc. So when the question was posed last week to the Yankees' Garrett Cole, where they asked him, has he used any type of substance, spider tack, or the like in any of his games? And after a long pause, he responded that, I don't know how to answer that question. Which makes you think, He's using something. And I know that was a tough spot. And I know he was put on the spot. And I get that you don't want to just either A, tip your hand or just willingly admit that, yes, I have been using these types of substances in order to get an advantage. But I'm not going to give him a pass because I'm sure he had to expect that question coming. And this was, I believe, the day before his start. This was last Tuesday because he did start against the Twins there on Wednesday in which he pitched well and was able to get a win. So that would have been the one opportunity to think if he wasn't using anything that 
he would have given up whatever, five runs in five innings, the performance that he had prior to against the Tampa Bay Rays at home. But for Cole to give you the runaround there, and even though he was honest in his answer, he didn't know how to answer it because, again, if somebody had posed that question to you, I'm sure you would have answered the same way. So even though he didn't flat out lie, but you pretty much know the truth in that answer. You know, it wasn't as if he said, no, I don't do anything to the baseballs. How could you test my integrity? I've loved this game my whole life. If he came out in that regard and then later on you find out something, then, oh, he's a complete phony. But by him saying, oh, I don't know how to answer that, it makes you think that, oh, well, okay, he is using something. Without actually admitting it. So, it remains to be seen now if the umpires are going to have the gall or the gumption to look at a pitcher in his eyes and say, hey, I want to check your hat or... What's that on your belt? Or let me see what's that on the outside of your glove. So the truth may come out here in the short term. But it's just a matter of whether or not these umpires enact these rules by Major League Baseball. Because they know this is an uphill battle for them. And they have to nip this in the bud as soon as they possibly can. So they've given a couple of weeks from when the report in Sports Illustrated came out that pitchers were doctoring the baseballs and Josh Donaldson and guys like Charlie Blackman coming out and saying, yeah, it's impossible to hit against these guys, especially if they're going to have this advantage. So let's see if they're going to, the umpires that is, going to take shape and crack down on what they feel may be an epidemic in the sport where a lot of these pitchers are taking advantage of these spin rates by using whatever substance to get a few miles an hour or even a few hundreds of spin rates per whatever it is, RPMs, etc. And then on the flip side, you had Pete Alonzo, the Met first baseman, conversely saying that the pitchers are on the issue. It's the manipulation of baseballs that depend on the free agent class that's coming out that he feels that the theory that he brought up to the media is actually a fact. Now, I don't know where he's getting that from. In a year where you have five top shortstops that are coming out, well, really four right now because Lindor is signed long-term, but when you have Trevor Story, Javier Baez, Carlos Correa, those are the first two off the top of my head, and also Corey Seager, who I believe is still on the IL with that thumb injury. A lot of these guys aren't having monster years. So if the ball is still juiced, or if the numbers are inflated in baseball, which they have not been across the board, as we all know, then his theory is right in the toilet. Because you would think, all right, maybe not all those guys are going to have monster years, but let's just say out of that core, that two of them are having breakout years or having tremendous walk years to where that theory could be backed up but as we've seen that isn't the case so I don't understand why Alonzo feels as if he has to represent for the player and we know Alonzo is a very bright guy and at the same time he's also very candid and very forthright with his answers as we've seen here over the last few years but even as a guy who's in his third year in the major leagues I know he's trying to get on the side of the pitchers 
because he doesn't want to be that one guy that's going to upset the apple cart because he wants to be able to not have the pitcher go up against him for the fear of maybe using some sort of substance. So when he says, hey, use sunscreen, use spider tack, use rosin, use Elmer's glue, whatever. He didn't say Elmer's, but my point is, is that of course he's going to side with the pitcher because he knows that if he's pro batter, a la Charlie Blackman and Josh Donaldson, and those two guys, have, of course, have been in the league for many years and have been in all-star games and won MVPs to where if Pete Alonso is going to come out and say that, the veteran pitcher is going to look at him like he has 10 heads. And where is he coming off with this theory that is presented as fact? So for Alonzo to say what he said, all right, he could be outspoken. He could address whatever it is that he's feeling. But at the same time, he's not trying to upset the apple cart here. I think that was his point in making his comments earlier in the week. Because like I said, Josh Donaldson could come out and maybe not single out players, but if he's going to say that, yeah, these pitchers are getting too much of an advantage here and I don't like it, well, the guy won an MVP when he was in Toronto. Or Charlie Blackman, he has won batting titles for whatever that's worth, but he's a guy that obviously has a reputation as a top center fielder and a very good ball player over the last five, seven years. Where Alonzo, granted rookie of the year, 53 home runs, etc., but he's just getting started. And speaking of the Mets, can I just pick up one thing where I left off from last week? If Jacob deGrom is not the best at what he does at this moment, not saying overall, the past three years, whatever, I'm talking about right now, June 14th, that he is the best at what he does more than any athlete in any sport on the planet right now, then you have not been paying attention. Because not only did he leave the game, and of course every Met fan has been holding their breath ever since, although it looks like he's not going to miss a start, which would be this coming Wednesday against the Cubs. But for him to throw six innings, one hit ball, no walks, ten strikeouts, and then to get the game-winning hit on top of that to where he has five RBIs, he's batting 400, and he has more RBIs than earned runs that he's given up this year. Do I need to say any more? I'll just leave it at that. And while we're on the tune here, a former Met who's pitched very well and may actually be an all-star for the American League this year and one Steven Matz, he has been put on the COVID list. And although the Yankees, who will be in Buffalo to play the Blue Jays, who have had their troubles with Toronto this year, three and six against them so far as we're getting closer to the halfway point, Matz, who pitched on Saturday, now on the COVID list, I guess, for the next 10 days. So you you wouldn't see him regardless, even if he was scheduled to pitch against the Yankees this week. But at the same time, you're not going to see him for another 10 days. And with the way things have been with COVID here, obviously a lot with baseball, controversial or not. We know Gleyber Torres had been on the shelf there a little bit with COVID. And even at the beginning of the year, a couple of other players, but... For the most part, it's been quiet, even with things opening up throughout the country. I would think that the protocols are still in effect where teams can't really, or players, can't really go far from the hotel or get out of the hotel because they don't know what they're going to run up against as far as other people, whether or not they've been vaccinated, etc. So I would think that the protocols have not been uplifted. And that goes, I would think, for all the sports, but for baseball in particular because they're in the middle of their regular season where the NBA is now obviously 
in their postseason. Same for the NHLs, we all know. So we have that to get into as far as a player contracting COVID. And as we take a look at the Major League Baseball landscape in the American League, the Tampa Bay Rays continue to do Tampa Bay Rays things. A sweep of the lowly Baltimore Orioles, coupled with the Red Sox floundering a bit over the weekend, as well as the Yankees and the Blue Jays hanging in. The Rays set themselves up for an interesting three days in Chicago, starting tonight against the White Sox, where they right now have the two best records in the American League. But with the Rays and how they performed here, you would think that they're going to be not just tough, and we've seen this over the last couple of years, but whenever we have a chance to knock down the Rays or think that they're not going to be able to persevere or get out of their own way, it looks like they're going to be the team to beat in the American League right now. I know the Red Sox have performed well. I get that the Blue Jays are hanging around. And then you have the Yankees, which, boy... You would never think that there'd be a rock bottom with this team, and they may have had that over the weekend in Philadelphia, but there's still plenty of baseball to be played. I could say I could trust the Rays to do what they do, but we all know that come the end of July, if they're going to try to get any type of reinforcement through the trade deadline, it is not going to happen. They'll probably pluck somebody off of someone's scrap heap and watch them pay dividends as we move along throughout the season. But you have to say, give the Rays a ton of credit for not only playing great baseball here over the last six weeks, but pretty much being at the top of the American League, which a lot of people thought that wouldn't be the case as we're just a couple of weeks away from July. And in the Central, you have the White Sox putting themselves some distance from the Cleveland Indians. So you would think that the White Sox would be off and running here as far as the Central goes. And in the West, the A's and the Astros, you figure, will be in for a division fight throughout the summer. But here come the, of all teams, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. One game over 500. I can't recall this late in the season them being anywhere near, let alone a game over 500. And as we all know, this is without Mike Trout. So will the Angels continue to stay afloat here and hang around as they're just Four games behind the Astros as far as second place goes and six games behind the Athletics. But too early to look at wild cards right now. I'm not going to break down how far they are from a wild card as of June 14th, but give them credit for a team that you thought would be at the bottom of the American League West. They have played very well here, and we know a lot of that has to do with Shohei Otani and what he's done not only just at the plate but even on the mound. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say he has light years, That's a bit too strong, but he still has a ways to go to catch up as a hitter the way he is as a pitcher. We know he has electric stuff. We know that he has strikeout capability, but at the same time, we know that he could be wild and walk the ballpark. So kudos to the Angels for doing what they've done to this point without their best player. And in the National League, the East, what could you say? It's still a mess. I know the Phillies had a great weekend against the Yankees, so they're the only team besides the Mets as being over 500, whether you're the Braves, Marlins, Nationals, Braves you think would right the ship at some point, but it's getting late early here, as Yogi Berry used to say, in this baseball season. The Marlins, they have young pitching, but again, they are a young team overall. You can't expect them to bounce back or be resilient. And then the Nationals, with Max Scherzer and his health status, 
not knowing what that's going to be moving forward because that's a piece that they're going to trade here come July 31st. But with his health is going to be compromised and he's not going to be 100%, you could pretty much throw that out the window. So if you're a Nats fan, I know that doesn't sit well with you right now. In the Central, the Cubs will be in New York to play the Mets here for four games. Playing very well, swept the Cardinals over the weekend, and the Cardinals are flailing right now to where they were in first place just two weeks ago, and now they are six games behind both the Brewers and Cubs, who have played very well at the top of the Central, and also the Reds give them some credit as they've hung in there, although five games back, but now in third place in the Central, and then out West with the Padres leaving town after losing two out of three to the Mets, and the Dodgers, who are still looking up at the Giants, who, what could you say? They, I don't want to say they're doing it with smoke and mirrors, but if you could give me the starting lineup for the Giants right now, I'd be very impressed. But at 40-25, and one game ahead of the Dodgers and three ahead of the Padres, you would think that they're going to be in the long haul for this race, provided that even without Evan Longoria, who's given them a contribution this year, but when you have pitching, especially cast-offs, led by Kevin Gossman, who had been with the Orioles prior to that. This is a team that, with Gabe Kapler, you can't trust with him at the helm. But let's see if they could battle it out here throughout the course of the next few months with the two teams that were looking to have postseason bids before the start of the season. Well, the Giants are looking to upset that fray in the NL West. So we'll wait and see how that all shakes down as we get deeper into this baseball season. All right, now let's uh, turn our attention briefly to the NFL. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here with some of the news and notes that have taken place over the past week, but I know the one story, if you're the Houston Texans and you're worried about your quarterback, first off, what is the NFL? And I'm sure they're still doing an investigation, so I got to lay off on them, but you would think as we get closer to training camp and to think, ugh, that's another five weeks away. I am not ready for football. And I know I'm in the minority when it comes to that. But you would think that the powers of be of the NFL will have to come down on the embattled quarterback of the Houston Texans and one Deshaun Watson as far as some sort of suspension. And I would think that this investigation is ongoing. But for Watson, through a former teammate in Kareem Jackson, who is now with the Denver Broncos, in a podcast with Aqib Talib, the former Bronco who had Jackson as a guest where he was quoted Deshaun Watson as saying that he wants to be in Denver. Now, could that be a tampering issue? We know that that's been loosely thrown around over the last couple of years, especially in the NBA and even to a certain extent in the NFL where we have a lot of these free agents signed before the free agent period. But when you have a player who's already locked with a contract over the next few years and is going through a situation where he's probably going to get suspended for at least the first eight games of the season. Maybe it wasn't the smartest thing for Jackson to kind of out his former teammate to think that he wants to be in Denver. But that could be another issue and another layer that could be added on to the Watson case as far as maybe tampering goes. So we'll have to wait to see what transpires there. No Aaron Rodgers at the mandatory OTAs. Is that a shock? Absolutely not. But Jordan Love, who's getting a ton of reps, is ready to start week one, as he said. And the reps have been great. He knows that the circumstances are beyond his control, but he's going to control what he can, taking it day by day. So that's a good thing 
to see if you're a Packer fan because who knows what that saga is going to end up. You would think Rodgers is going to stay in Green Bay. We just have to wait and see the start of training camp as to whether Rodgers does show up or he's going to take fines every day that he misses, which is going to add up very quick. So that story is certainly continued to be written. And then you also had some sad news where former Giant coach Jim Fossil, who in 2000 took the Giants and Kerry Collins to a Super Bowl that was against the Baltimore Ravens, had died of a heart attack early this week at the age of 71. For all reports, as we know back in the day, here being in New York, Jim Fossil, a great guy, great with the media, great with his teammates, had that great run to the Super Bowl where they beat the Eagles in the division game and then shut out the Minnesota Vikings before getting their doors blown off in the Super Bowl by that Raven defense. But sad news there where Jim Fossil dies at the age of 71 and never got a chance to coach after that, which is a surprise because usually if you take a team to the Super Bowl, and even if you lose, you're going to be remembered for losing the game, but you would think that would have enough credence to get another job. And although he did work in Baltimore as an offensive assistant to Brian Billick in his final couple of years there after winning that Super Bowl, ironically, but he never got that other shot. And just a sad story, not only of him passing away, but him not getting another opportunity to coach in the league. That was his only run. Made it to the postseason another time in 1997, as well as 2000 and two, but the Super Bowl year is the one he's going to be known and remembered for. Thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Fossil family, and of course he has a son who's in the league as a special teams coach. And then lastly, and this pertains more to college football, but they are considering a 12-team playoff format where they'll have the one through four, the top four seeds have buys, and then five through 12 will work it out. If you ask me, sounds great. Early stages, I think it's a little ambitious right now. In the last five years, you increase it to four, and that's fine. I would say increase it to eight. There's no need to go to 12 to make that jump right now. I would say go four more teams. You could still have those buys, one through four, and then you could have five play eight, six play seven, and then obviously you could seed from there on out. And that's how you should take it. Or in fact, what you sh- what they should do is your top two teams will have buys. Three will play eight. Four will play seven. Five will play six. And then take it from there. Because you can't have five through eight play and then have four buys. you got to give two buys and then have it play out that way. That would be the better way to go. I think it's just a little bit too much. See how you do with eight. For whatever the reason, if eight seems to be not enough or some teams are getting left out, then increase it to 12. Or maybe even 10 for that matter. I think to do 12 would be a little bit too much right now. I mean, you went from two, in essence, you went from the national championship game to a final four, and now you're going to go from four to 12? I'm not saying it won't work, but it may be a little bit too much right now. All right, now let's wrap it up with a tournament that just finished and another one on the horizon in both of these sports, and we'll start off with tennis with the French Open. And as I've been saying pretty much from the start of this tournament till now, they are just counting their lucky stars and just thank goodness that this is over. This was one the French Open certainly would love to forget, even though it ended on as high of a note as you could possibly get when you have Novak Djokovic winning the French Open. So what that means as of right this second 
not only has he won the first two legs of the four major tennis tournaments of the year, but he did it in comeback fashion, not only beating Rafael Nadal on Friday in the semifinal in four sets, but also winning down 0-2 to Stefanos Tsitsipas, down 0-2, and then pretty much took a bathroom break, came back, and was the dominant Djokovic that we have seen over the years, time after time after time, winning in five sets. Wimbledon is two weeks away from today, so you wonder what the turnaround time is going to be, but now the question is twofold. With him winning his 19th major tournament, and the only, I might add, only player to win two of each of the Grand Slams. Because remember, Roger Federer has only won one French Open. And Rafael Nadal, I believe, has only won one Australian Open. So you have a scenario where Novak Djokovic has won two of each. And 19, which is one behind the aforementioned Nadal and Roger Federer. So to think, if he goes ahead and wins the next two, which would be Wimbledon in two weeks and the U.S. Open later on in the summer here at Flushing Meadow, he will not only surpass both Nadal and Federer of majors all-time with 21, but then you'd have to arguably or inarguably say that he is the greatest men's player of all time. Or could you answer that right now? Even if he doesn't win another major tournament the rest of this year, is he still the GOAT of all time when it comes to men's tennis players? And if you ask me, I think he is. He's younger than those two guys. He's going to eclipse both of those guys. Nadal, we all know that his surface is the clay, and he's the king of that domain. And he wasn't able to beat Djokovic here on Friday. Who knows what he's going to have left in the tank for Wimbledon, considering the turnaround time, as well as the U.S. Open. Federer, he's coming back from knee injuries last year and surgery. So we don't know what to expect from him. And Djokovic, he has been dominant throughout. He is a guy that is on top of his game. He's a guy that is only going to beat himself. And with the way things are looking at, is he going to go ahead and win a calendar Grand Slam? Because the last person to do that was almost 60 years ago in a one-rod labor. And you talk about Immortal. He's already an immortal tennis player, but now if he does that, the guy's probably going to end up being the sportsman of the year. And a lot of people will look at that and say, wait, who the hell is Novak Djokovic? But not only is he that good and that dominant, but right there, if that doesn't cement it as the best men's player of all time, I don't know what will. And as I said, I think right now he already is. Because we could stack the majors with Nadal, Federer, And they're still ahead of Djokovic, but I think just for pure dominance and not only that, with Nadal and Federer starting to tail off, and to me, Djokovic, he's the energizer bunny. He just keeps going and going and going. And there's no slowing down and no stopping this guy. So to anoint him as the men's best tennis player right now is not a stretch and certainly not far-fetched. And he's well-deserving of that. But if he's going to win this Grand Slam, it's going to be interesting to see how Wimbledon plays out. 
because you would think he's going to have a rematch there with Tsitsipas. Who knows what you're going to get out of Nadal or Federer here. Alexander Zverev, who lost to Tsitsipas in the semifinal at the French, is he a guy that could take on a one Novak Djokovic? I think if Novak doesn't get the calendar Grand Slam, he's probably not going to get it in Wimbledon only because of the turnaround time. Two weeks. Is that going to be enough rest? Is that going to be enough to recoup, recover? I mean, he is in his mid-30s. It's not as if he's 28 years old. And also, even with Federer at 40, and I believe Nadal's around the same age, but Nadal has a lot more mileage, I think, than Djokovic does, despite the fact that he's won all these tournaments. I think if he does lose it, it's going to be here because who's going to beat him on the hard surface in Queens after Wimbledon? And I get there may be pressure amongst the tennis media and Djokovic, who knows how he's going to respond to that, where he's going to have everybody in his ear or everybody shoving a microphone in his face. All right, you won Wimbledon now. Do you think you could pull off the first Grand Slam in a calendar year in almost 60 years? At least it gives tennis some juice in that regard because this sport, as we've seen, provides none. Other than Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic. Now, Tsitsipas, give it up. He's played very well, and he's a guy that's on the come up. Zeverev, another guy. And I'm sure there's a couple others in there you could throw in the mix, but the men's tennis tour has been dominated by those top three players. And on the women's side, you can forget it. The women's, you had Barbara, I can't even pronounce her last name, so forgive me if I butcher this. Krejcikova. She won in three sets over Anastasia, and good luck with this one, Plavlichenkova. Now, those are names you read every day. She wins Krejcikova. It's actually her fifth major tournament that she's participated in, and she already has a Grand Slam victory under her belt. Now, of course, that could be not an asterisk, but it could be a footnote only because we know about Naomi Osaka not being there at the end. Petra Kvitkova, who had to leave because of an injury, as well as Ash Barty, who was the number one player in the world. So it did set the stage for Krejcikova to win. And not only that, but she also beat Coco Goff, who I thought here in the States could be a story where she made it to the quarterfinals and lost to the eventual champion. But many people outside of tennis who are familiar with Coco Goff, I mean, she was the last woman standing because the matchup there in the final, I couldn't pick out those women if my life depended on it. But again, that goes to where the sport is, especially here in this country, because although it's global, and rightfully so, but it's not as if we got a lot of dominant women's players that are out here that are making a name to go up against a lot of these foreign players. And it's pretty much the same with the men's side. You know, there's not that contemporary for all the guys that I mentioned that are here in the States that you could say, all right, this guy is our version of Novak Djokovic. That guy's nowhere to be seen. So we'll keep our eyes peeled for Wimbledon because this is going to be a story with Djokovic playing at the top of his game 
and that much more closer to his peers to equal 20 Grand Slam tournament victories on top of trying to get that calendar Grand Slam. And then on Thursday, you have the U.S. Open, which is always Father's Day weekend. And on the heels of last month's PGA, you have to wonder, for the Phil Mickelson fan and, of course, the camp of Phil Mickelson, will he be in contention and that momentum from Kiowa Island be transferred from one coast to the next? Because this is the one tournament that has eluded Mickelson throughout his career as being the bridesmaid and never the bride. And it's in his backyard at Torrey Pines in La Jolla. He's from San Diego. And we know what happened. It was pretty much a divine intervention, so to speak, when you look at how everything unfolded last month in South Carolina. We had all these top players not making the cut. You also had the elements there with the wind right there on the ocean where the players didn't really bring the course to its knees. And now you have a scenario where you go from east coast to west where that golf course is right on the water. You figure that the weather is going to be sunny. The temps are going to be mild. But I'm sure you're going to have to deal with some wind and deal with something similar to what these golfers experienced last month there at the PGA. But if you're Phil Mickelson... You have to be not only sleeping pretty good the last few weeks, but now you have to wonder whether or not you could capture this baby because I'm sure, as I said, after the PGA, and I'll say it again, if you put some truth serum in him, and if he doesn't come out victorious this weekend, if somebody were to ask, would you want to trade that PGA for this U.S. Open, especially with everything that I just mentioned right now, in his backyard, coming off the heels of the PGA, would you trade that in a heartbeat? And I'm sure he would say a resounding hell yes. But we'll see. It's going to be a tournament where a lot of these golfers are going to try to bounce back, whether your name is Dustin Johnson in particular, who's been awful so far this calendar year. Didn't make the cut at the Masters. Didn't make the cut at the PGA. I'm actually going to think that he's going to be close to the top of the leaderboard. I picked John Rahm to win the PGA last month. And remember, last weekend he had that one tournament where he had to pull out because he had COVID. He's actually going to perform this week as he's been cleared to not only travel but also play. He's a guy I think will be at the top of the leaderboard as well. So to piggyback the PGA and especially his performance recently, I'm going to pick him to win. But I think Dustin Johnson will be at the top or near the top of the leaderboard next week or this coming weekend, Saturday or Sunday. So we'll keep an eye on that. You also have the budding rivalry between Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka, which... If anybody is rooting for anything this weekend in golf, is for those two guys to be at the top of the leaderboard. Because you know what that means? Not only will they be fighting out for a championship, but their tee times will be the same. So they will have to walk the 18 holes pretty much side by side. So you want to talk about some drama? You want to talk about some intrigue? You want to talk about a fascinating subplot? That's the one that NBC is going to be looking for. And I believe it's going to be on NBC, the... U.S. Open. So they are praying to the high heavens for something like that to happen. But I'm sure you're going to see the usual suspects, as I've said time after time. Tony Finals, the Lee Westwoods, the 
Tommy Fleetwoods, Patrick Cantlay, go down the list, Justin Thomas. You know who those top golfers are who either come close, Xander Shoffley, or have been victorious. But I'm going to say John Rahm. I don't think Phil's going to be anywhere near. He's going to be a story that everybody's going to watch. And I could see him getting off to a good start. He's just got to put four good days together. And he was able to do that there at the PGA last month. And you just wonder whether or not he's going to have that type of performance in him literally three and a half weeks after the fact of him winning a major tournament. So we'll keep our eyes on that. And I that Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka thing is going to be one to watch. And Kepka, who played very well there at the PGA, as we know, was just a stroke or two behind Mickelson for winning that tournament. And DeChambeau has had a terrible year himself. He has not fared well after winning the PGA last year at Wingfoot. So golf is about to embark on their third major tournament before next month going across the pond to play the British. And I'll continue to focus on that here as we are just days away from that tournament commencing. Now, before I get to my hero and zero of the week, I just want to give a shout out to Denmark's Christian Eriksson. He is the player, soccer player who collapsed during the Euro 2020 game over the weekend versus Finland, or I believe it was late last week. Now, he has been stabilized. He is awake, but that was a scary optic there and could have been fatal. Thankfully, it was averted. Wishing him a speedy recovery for all the reports that I've read that he's awake and he's doing okay, but I'm sure they're continuing to monitor his progress and his health. So just a great thing to see because that was just one that, oof, would shake you and rattle you to your bones if you watch that in real time. And I didn't, but just reading the story and, I mean, there was a 90-minute delay. It was a surprise that they actually went ahead with the game and continued, but just thankfully everything worked out all right in that regard. So I just had to give him a quick shout out there just to make sure to his family and friends and everybody that a speedy recovery will certainly be wished from Jay Reels and my listeners out there to him. Now let's get to it. My hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week is Utah Jazz forward Jordan Clarkson for assisting with a local food truck vendor who was a victim of a racial attack by some vandals. They had spray-painted some hateful comments on the truck. So when word got to Clarkson, who is part black and part Filipino, it was actually a Filipino food truck. He had worked with some politicians and businesses to help restore the food truck. And on top of that, offered the food truck owners a significant amount of money, some financial assistance to get them back on the road and they get their business upright. Uh, Just a terrible job by whomever those people are, and I hope to get caught and prosecuted to the fullest. But for Clarkson to not only state his claim as far as his background, his heritage, and also to help out with the local businessmen and politicians, etc., and to also hand over a check to these people, as good of a job as you could possibly expect from an athlete, and in this case, an NBA athlete. So, Jordan, you are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to Le'Veon Bell. The NFL running back was a free agent at the moment for apologizing after posting a tweet that he retired before ever playing for Kansas City Chief Coach Andy Reid. He said he had no regrets over what he said, and that's fine. But then he 
also came out and said that he could have and should have kept his comments to himself, and that's why he's sorry. So why would you be sorry for that? I mean, if you felt 100% and you don't have any regrets at saying that, then why would you want to retract or even apologize by stating that? And of course, we know that Bell's had his moments with social media and getting himself in trouble, whether it's with other players, coaches, whatever. But here's the deal. We know why he's sorry, or in this case, that he had to let out an apology. Because what team or coach is going to be willing to take a chance on him as he tries to resurrect his career, knowing that if he submarine this coach and a Super Bowl winning coach at that, that if he's going to try to latch on to some other team, of course, by throwing out that apology is damage control 101. But the sad part is, Le'Veon, is that we can see that a mile away. And much steps for all you did in Pittsburgh as a huge Steeler fan, etc. But come on, man. If we can't sniff that out, knowing that you're trying to get back in the league and offer some sort of hollow apology just to be in some good graces for an organization or a coach or whatever to have your NFL career, which is pretty much on life support right now. Sorry, my G, you are my zero of the week. And that'll do it for episode 198. As always, people, for those who download, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, I greatly appreciate you guys, as I said from the top, and not to go ahead and repeat myself, but if you could go ahead and do that, I would greatly appreciate that, just to help promote the expansion of the podcast and the growth as well. If you haven't done so, just please go to your app or your device on wherever you download your podcast to subscribe, rate, and review. It's just going to increase the visibility, as you heard from the very beginning, So, once again, I do appreciate all you guys for taking the time out of your day to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you want to send me a message, whether it's uh, some criticism, I'm open for it. Some praise, you know I'll be open for that as well. You could do so at any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram at JReels or the JReels Podcast. On Twitter, JReels1, just a number. On Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page. Or if you want to send me an email, you could do so at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to send whatever it is that's on your mind. I'll be sure to follow up ASAP. And if you want to support the podcast by contributing, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy. Whatever you want to contribute, I would sincerely and gratefully and graciously appreciate that just to the upkeep of the website, production, equipment, etc. Whether you do or do not know, I plan on going nowhere, people. I'm two episodes away from 200. I plan to do 2,000 more as long as the good Lord will keep me on his green earth. This is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. I've been talking about sports pretty much since birth to give you my in-depth analysis, my opinions, to entertain, to inform you all on everything that's happening on the diamond, the gridiron, the hardwood, the ice, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>